Welcome to the Witnessing History Education Foundation podcast, educating Americans to understand the history of their country and of other countries so that they will appreciate the value of America's unique, free institutions. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Today, Kent Masterson Brown is joined by A. Wilson Green, author of A Campaign of Giants, The Battle for Petersburg, Volume 1, From the Crossing of the James to the Crater. William Marvel is an author of many books on the Civil War, including Lee's retreat from Petersburg to Appomattox. He says, I think it is safe to say that A. Wilson Green knows more about the Petersburg campaign than any other living person. And now, let Kent Masterson Brown and A. Wilson Green take you on a journey to the campaign of Petersburg, Virginia, 1864. And now, let Kent Masterson Brown take you on a journey through American history. Well, Will, welcome. Uh, it's good to see you again. It's good to be here, Kent. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> well, you've been introduced as someone who knows more about the Petersburg campaign than any living person. Well, there are lots of dead people that I'm sure know much more about Petersburg than I do, but I appreciate that compliment, whether it's accurate or not. Well, I'll call Bill Marvel uh, after this, and I'll ask him exactly what he meant by that. But no, it's really great to see you again, and welcome to uh, to our podcast here. Um, uh, you're you've just written the first volume of a campaign for giants uh, of giants um, on the uh, Battle of Petersburg, and. Um, uh, you're, this is a projected three-volume uh, work of yours. That's correct. And um, first of all, let me tell you and let me tell all our listeners what a tremendous work it is and how well it reads and how uh, engrossing it is Thank uh, you. To, to read. And I totally recommend to our, our public that they pick up a copy of your book. It's terrific. And these are things that have not been really well written about uh, for, well, forever. And, and you're putting the whole thing together in a, in a massive piece of work. And congratulations. Thank it's you, terrific. Ken. It's absolutely terrific. Let me start by asking you, uh, Will, uh, some of our listeners uh, may know a lot about Petersburg. Some of them may know very little. Give us kind of a synopsis of this campaign in a short, as short as you can go, but I mean a, a synopsis of it. Well, the Petersburg campaign mm -hmm. lasted 292 days. So depending on how you judge the length of a campaign in the Civil War, you could make the argument it was the longest continuous campaign of the entire war. It was focused around the second largest city in Virginia mm -hmm. and the seventh largest city in the Confederacy, mm -hmm. Petersburg, mm -hmm. which got its importance in the war as a communications and transportation center. Mm -hmm. Five railroads entered into Petersburg and four of them were integral to the supply of the Army of Northern Virginia and the capital at Richmond. And when General Grant and his Army of the Potomac, along with General Butler uh, and the Army of the James, and General Meade, of course, commanded the Army of the Potomac, had intended to focus on Richmond at the beginning of the spring of 1864, but in that bloody overland campaign, mm -hmm. they were not able to <laughs> either destroy the Army of Northern Virginia or capture the Confederate capital at Richmond. And so Grant made his decision to focus on the Transportation and Communication Center 23 miles south of Richmond at Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And the campaign involved nine separate Union offensives, a couple of Confederate offensives. Initially, Grant hoped to be able to bull his way into Petersburg. Mm -hmm. The first three offensives had some kind of attempt 
to attack Confederate fortifications and break into Petersburg. Mm -hmm. All of those offenses failed. And so the fourth through eighth offensives mm -hmm. were designed to cut off one by one, moving east to west, the transportation arteries leading into Petersburg and then into Richmond. Mm -hmm. It was not until the final offensive on April 2nd, 1865, that Grant reverted to frontal assaults that, of course, were successful that day and led in a week to the surrender of Lee's army at Appomattox Courthouse. Mm -hmm. Basically, just wore them down. Uh, uh, the, the the Confederate Army. I mean, think of the the days and months in those trenches. Well, it, it that is that is. I think I would agree with you to a large extent. But one of the reasons you mentioned at the top of the show that Petersburg is not as well known mm -hmm. by many people who study the Civil War mm -hmm. as other campaigns, and I think part of the reason is that it is too often portrayed as a static operation mm -hmm. of trench warfare in which really nothing much happened except the armies suffered in these unspeakable trenches. Oh. Uh, there were a couple of exceptions, the Battle of the Crater we've all heard about, and then yeah. people, authors seem to jump to the Battle of Five Forks on April 1st, 1865. Yeah. And there really wasn't any strategy. There wasn't any operational complexity to this. It was just mm -hmm. this boring World War One-ish yeah. trench campaign. And, and my contention is that there was a lot more oh, sure. action at Petersburg that is of interest to people who mm -hmm. want to study the operations of Civil War armies than is generally accepted. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, um, uh, uh, Will, in, in terms of the uh, supply, and I'm thinking here mostly of Lee's army, uh, how was that accomplished. And, um, uh, and if it, obviously it was to some degree, uh, but uh, tell, tell us what you know about that, how he is being supplied. It, it, it's always been interesting to me. Well, it is. And of course, you're a master at uh, explaining the logistics of the Civil War, an extremely important aspect of mm -hmm. the military operations, one that's yeah. often overlooked by, yeah. by authors. Lee depended on railroads, like all Civil War generals did. There were three railroads that he was interested in. Mm -hmm. uh, one was the railroad leading in from the Shenandoah Valley that mm -hmm. went to Richmond, did not go to Petersburg. Uh, the second was another railroad that bypassed Petersburg called the Richmond and Danville Railroad right. that came in from southwest Virginia. But his most important rail line was the Petersburg Railroad that ran from Petersburg, 60 miles south, to Weldon, North Carolina. Oftentimes in the literature, people will see it as the Weldon the Railroad. Weldon Railroad. Was, the real name was the Petersburg Railroad, mm -hmm. which connected at Weldon in northern North Carolina with the Weldon and Wilmington Railroad, mm -hmm. which ran to the only functioning Atlantic Confederate port. Mm -hmm. at Wilmington, North Carolina. Mm -hmm. That was a major supply line for Lee, not mm -hmm. only for blockade runners, but also from the produce from every place from Georgia and Alabama all the way up through the Carolinas. And one of Grant's offensives, the fourth offensive, cut that railroad, but it didn't end the supply line because Lee was able to bring his supplies by rail up to a point about 23 miles south of Petersburg at a place called Stony Creek, and then offloaded those supplies onto wagons, brought them across country and into Petersburg, and then on the railroad from Petersburg to Richmond. Yeah. But they were major logistical challenges, yeah. and Grant understood this, of course, and attempted on several occasions to operate extensive cavalry raids designed to destroy those rail lines. Yeah, interdict that. I mean, it, it's cut it off. If you cut it off, the army dies. I mean— uh, um, yeah, that's always been a, a, a source of fascination for me is how you keep an army fed and how do you keep its animals fed? And because, uh, you know, we're, we're in horse country here and um, a horse, you know, in, in the army regs, regulations, uh, it's 14 pounds of oats and 14 pounds of hay a day per animal. Is what the army. Well, it would take something like sixty tons mm. of supplies a day yeah. to sustain a Civil War army in the field. Sixty tons a day yeah. 
There it is. It's a there remarkable it logistical challenge. Yeah. And uh, the Army of Northern Virginia suffered, I would say, incrementally and also um, – uh, not in a continuous way. As you, mm-hmm. as the, the standard interpretation at Petersburg is that the Confederate Army was starving and barefoot. Mm-hmm. I think that's an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. Now, were there periods of time mm-hmm. when particular units were not getting sufficient supplies? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But it varied mm-hmm. from unit to unit and it varied from time to time. And Lee and his um, logistical officers – uh, Isaac St. John became mm-hmm. the new uh, man in charge of logistical supplies for the Army in the winter of 1865 and did a much better job than his predecessor did mm-hmm. in keeping the Army of Northern Virginia viable. Yeah. I remember, Will, and I want to get on to uh, a, a more a, a direct encounter between these two armies at Petersburg, but I remember um, in, in research I was doing for George Meade, uh, that uh, a uh, the assistant quartermaster general wrote a report that I found in the uh, papers of the quartermaster general in the National Archives, where he talked about the Army of the Potomac in the Overland campaign and on the brink of the Petersburg campaign, and how, um, but for the fact that uh, there was. Uh, 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 crops growing in uh, Pennsylvania, eastern Pennsylvania, southern Pennsylvania, uh, and Maryland in their rear uh, in the uh, midsummer, the army would have been without anything. And they were relying on the grasses to keep the animals uh, going. And um, I I, I found what, what was interesting was that Here's the Army of the Potomac you think is going to be endless supplies. Yet, even them uh, were in trouble at times. It's it's, uh, really incredible when you think about the supply situation for the Union armies. Grant's entire campaign from the wilderness to Petersburg was predicated Mm -hmm. on maintaining Mm -hmm. a supply line via water. Yeah. Uh, he kept moving his supply line from Tidal River to Tidal River. Mm-hmm. When he left the Orange and Alexandria Railroad to begin the Overland Campaign, yeah. this was a vulnerable time because yeah. he had to move his supply line to the Rappahannock, the Potomac River first, then as he moved south to the mm-hmm. Rappahannock River, mm-hmm. and then to the York River, and eventually to the James River, where at Petersburg he set up his logistical headquarters at City Point which became the busiest port in North America during the time that the Petersburg campaign uh, was being conducted. And and, I mean, hundreds of ships coming and going every day. We have – there's photographic evidence of it from the Civil War. It is is amazing. Uh, Grant built a railroad behind his lines connecting City Point with the front lines. Yeah. And just the uh, the challenge of feeding all of those men and all of those animals was something that a competent general had to pay attention to much more often yeah. than battle plans. That's exactly right. It's like – it's exactly right. It's like you live in Chattanooga, near Chattanooga. Um, think of what Sherman did to Chattanooga uh, to prepare his army for an advance into Georgia. I mean he turned Chattanooga into an industrial complex. Well, absolutely. And and even before that, what um, Grant had to do to lift the partial siege of Chattanooga in the fall of 1863, opening the so-called cracker line. Yeah. And we don't want to get involved in no. all the logistics of the Chattanooga campaign. But, no. but Grant could not do anything at Chattanooga to relieve the siege until he established a reliable supply line. That yeah. was mission number one. And it's always mission number one always. with armies. Always. Always. Well, you know, one thing you do in your book is in this, the first volume you've got out here is you end it at the crater. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the Battle of the Crater. And um, a lot of people have heard about it. Uh, some people know a great deal. You are the one of the living historians. You're the one. Um, it, it tell, Set the stage for the fighting at the crater. 
Well, the, the, the crater resulted from action that began at the conclusion of Grant's first offensive at Petersburg, the June 15th to 18th battles. And on the end of the day, on the 18th, the 5th and 9th Corps of the Army of the Potomac approached the Confederate line very closely, mm -hmm. only about 200, 150 to 200 yards from the Confederate forts. But they mm -hmm. could not breach those forts. They could mm -hmm. not actually attack them and break the Confederate line. But they were very close and they did not retreat. Mm -hmm. A member of the 48th Pennsylvania, which had a number of coal miners from northeastern Pennsylvania in its ranks, looked at that Confederate fort 150 yards away uh, on top of a hill and said, you know, if we could run a mine shaft underground beneath that fort and put powder in it, we could blow it to hell. Mm -hmm. And that was the genesis of the idea. The commander of the brigade in which the 48th Pennsylvania served, it was the former commander of the 48th Pennsylvania, was a man named Henry Pleasance, who was a an established and esteemed mining engineer prior mm -hmm. to the war. Mm -hmm. So he saw the feasibility of this concept and got permission from his superiors, uh, including General Burnside, the Corps commander, who then went to General Meade, the Army commander. Meade and his engineering officer were skeptical of this, Kent. They thought mm -hmm. that uh, the distance between where the mine would have to begin in order to maintain secrecy and the Confederate fort was just too long to ventilate, mm -hmm. among other challenges, and more to keep the Ninth Corps fellows busy mm -hmm. than to expect anything really to come of it. Meade and his headquarters staff gave their permission, but not necessarily a lot of active support mm -hmm. to the mining effort. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, you know, we're here in Lexington, Kentucky, and the 48th Pennsylvania uh, uh, was garrisoned here. Um, occupied the grounds near Transylvania University, and there are four burials in our Lexington Cemetery of members of the 48th Pennsylvania. Well, I read a, le a letter the other day from a soldier who said that they referred to the Ninth Corps as Burnside's geography class. <laughs> I had never heard that before, no. but he said that's what they called the Ninth Corps because it had moved around <laughs> everywhere from the east to Vicksburg in Kentucky and yeah. Cincinnati in its, yeah. uh, in its yeah. various travels yeah. in the war. It, oh, it really did. The traveling Ninth, the wandering Ninth. Um, well, let's go to June 25th. Um, this is uh, where the mine operation begins. Um, kind of tell the, our listeners what kind of issues uh, Pleasance faced, Colonel Pleasance faced, uh, in even constructing this thing. Well, the first job he had was to figure out how to align the mine. Yeah. And uh, he realized that uh, doing so would be very dangerous. And when he was first assessing the feasibility of this, he and one of his staff officers peeked their heads up above the ravine in which the Ninth Corps was concealed, and his staff officer was shot in the head mm -hmm. as a result of this. And so he realized that the Confederate marksmen would shoot at anybody who appeared above the lip of that ravine. And so uh, Pleasance had to acquire an old-fashioned instrument called a theodolite. There was one at Army headquarters, but the engineer at Army headquarters, James Duane, who did not like General Burnside, uh, decided that he <laughs> had he wasn't other, alone. But <laughs> he had other uses for that theodolite. So Burnside was able to get an old-fashioned one, which is like a transit. And Pleasance had to literally put a burlap sack on his head, decorated with some sod to mm -hmm. make it look like dirt. And he brought three or four of his staff officers with him who he positioned about 10 feet or 15 feet away from him, who then raised their kepis on the tips of their bayonets to attract the attention of Confederate marksmen. And as the Confederates were shooting at those kepis, mm -hmm. Pleasance peeked up over the ravine with his burlap hat and <laughs> took readings and was able to actually align his Gosh. mind so that it would go underneath the fort. Mm -hmm. But he had, Kent, he had lots of other challenges. He had to figure out a way to 
ventilate the shaft. He had to figure out a way to hide the excavated dirt so the Confederates wouldn't see that mining was going on. He had to obtain wood for shoring uh, and all of these logistical problems, which he was able to overcome. Yeah. Uh, the one thing he didn't do particularly well, and this is understandable and not really a criticism, was despite his admonitions to keep this operation secret, mm-hmm. of course, word got out. Yeah. And right. he could not uh, prevent these thousands of Union soldiers who were yeah. aware either directly or by rumor of yeah. mining yeah. that uh, it was going on. Yeah. How how long did this – was this shaft? In it? it was – it was the the shaft itself was 510 feet eight inches long, and then he had to construct two 37 and a half foot long lateral galleries mm-hmm. that branched off like a big wide V from mm-hmm. the end of the tunnel underneath the Confederate fort, uh, in which the black powder would be placed. That mm-hmm. would be the explosive. So altogether, what is that? 75, almost 500 and what 86 feet of excavation in order to get this done. The tunnel was about four and a half feet high, about four feet wide at the base, maybe two and a half feet wide at the top. Mm -hmm. Um, I think someone once calculated the amount of earth, the number of cubic yards of earth that were that were excavated. I can't recall the figure, but it was a massive amount. And these fellows, of course, had to take all the dirt out and they rigged up uh, hardtack boxes and they put handles on them. Mm -hmm. And there'd be three miners, Kent, that would go in. One would have a pick that uh, Pleasance had adapted for use inside the, the tunnel who would actually excavate the dirt. The second fellow would take the dirt and put it in the box. The third fellow would pick up the box and take it out. And these fellows would work in two-hour shifts. They, they would come out looking like they said brown gophers, and they'd all be given a gill of whiskey yeah. as a reward yeah. for, their, for their work. And the 48th Pennsylvania did the excavating exclusively. They were the only unit that did it. Yeah. Had there ever been a mine that – extensive done? No, there had not. And this was the origin of Major Duane's skepticism about it. Yeah. Duane, the engineer at the Army of the Potomac, uh, was actually the author of the manual mm-hmm. on how to mine. Mm-hmm. Now, your listeners need to understand that there wasn't anything particularly innovative about the strategy of mining mm-hmm. underneath an enemy position. It had been done for centuries, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Grant had done this at Vicksburg the previous year. Yeah. So the idea of a mine was not unique or innovative, but the excavation of it of that length, 510 feet, was – Unique. Yeah. And the problem was ventilating that much air without the Confederates finding out about yeah. it. Yeah. Tell, tell, tell our listeners about the ventilation of this thing. It's, I mean, you know, it's based on principles that Pleasance had used in civilian mining in Pennsylvania. Very basic stuff. Ken, you could have locked me in a room for 10 weeks and I never would have come up with this. <laughs> but it was based on the principle of hot air rises. Yeah. And what he did was, as I say, you'd have to see the ground, which is well-preserved and you can still understand how the mining went by visiting the site. But the mouth of the mine was down in this ravine that was not visible from the Confederates on on top of the hill. Mm -hmm. And as he dug his mine, the first maybe 40, 50 feet, he would get underneath the lip of that ravine. And Mm -hmm. just inside Mm -hmm. the top of that ravine, so it wasn't visible – Pleasance dug a vertical shaft. It was a little over 20 feet deep Mm -hmm. down into the base of the mine. At the bottom of that shaft, he had a grate in which he kept a fire going. And then he rigged up a wooden duct or pipe Mm -hmm. that connected the end of the digging with the outside of the mine, which he closed off with an airtight canvas door. Mm -hmm. And so as the fire burned, it would draw the bad air out, hot mm-hmm. air rises, it would go out the shaft like a chimney, mm-hmm. and the vacuum then would be created and that air would be replaced by fresh air coming in through the duct. Mm-hmm. Now, a couple of things puzzle me about this that I've never seen an explanation for. 
Uh, one thing in particular was, of course, these fellows had to come and go all the time in and out of that mine. Sure. So they had to remove the canvas door and replace it every time they did so, which I would have thought would have interfered with this airflow. But nowhere has, does anyone mention in the literature any real problems with the quality of the air. Now, I'm sure that if you and I had been at the end of that shaft, we would have found it almost suffocating and claustrophobic. Yeah, I wouldn't have gone in. And I mean, very, <laughs> very unpleasant. But obviously, it was sufficiently uh, yeah. efficient yeah. to sustain life and to have these guys keep working. Yeah. And how long did it take until this thing was ready? Three weeks. Three weeks. He finished the, the shaft on, on July 17th, started on, the, on June 25th, mm -hmm. so just a little over three weeks. Mm -hmm. And then he dug those lateral galleries. That took a few more days. And then when the powder arrived, uh, of course, he prefabricated all of the wooden elements of this outside right. of the mine and then disassembled it and brought it into the mine and then reassembled it. Mm -hmm. And he had to build eight uh, hoppers, uh, which were basically square boxes at the bottom with a funnel-like device uh, fixed on top. And that's where the black powder would be poured in. Mm -hmm. And the, he, he got 8,000 pounds of explosive powder that came in 25-pound kegs. And so some poor guys... <laughs> had to get rigged up with like a, an oxen yoke they put around their shoulders with two little bags on either side in which these 25-pound wooden kegs of powder were placed. Mm -hmm. And these fellows had to bend over and walk more than 500 feet in this confined space with 50 pounds of black powder on their person through a shaft that was illuminated by candles. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that took a few cojones to do that. <laughs> I should say so. But, you know, in a period of, of uh, only 10 or 12 hours, yeah. they were able to charge all of the hoppers with those 8,000 pounds of powder. And then they acquired a regular fuse, which came in short lengths. And mm -hmm. so Pleasance had to splice them together. It was about 98 feet of mm -hmm. fuse, which they connected to the hoppers mm -hmm. that ran back from the lateral galleries. And then the last thing he did was to tamp the entrance, the, the junction of the tunnel with mm -hmm. the lateral galleries right. with sandbags and logs mm -hmm. so that when the explosion occurred, the tamping would prevent it from going back down yeah. the tunnel yeah. instead make sure that it went up, up. up. Yeah. and um, by July 27th this operation was completely finished and ready to go wow before we light the fuse fuses uh, tell me tell the our listeners about where this this whole operation is at Grant's headquarters uh, he's he's basically the boss here Although Meade is commanding the Army of the Potomac, but still the final decision is going to be with Grant. Where is Grant? I mean, is he on board with this? Grant uh, and Meade are on the same page on this, Kent, in, in, in which they have um, skepticism, not so much about the technical ability of Pleasance to build this mine, mm -hmm. but the efficacy of a, an attack subsequent to the explosion. Mm -hmm. Both Meade and Grant were skeptical that anything would come of this yeah. because of the nature of the Confederate defense. Yeah. Yeah. Grant was not thinking that the mine was central to his planning yeah. for what we call the third offensive at yeah. Petersburg. Instead, Grant relied on an operation that would go across the James River. Uh, around June 22nd, the Federal Army had established a bridgehead on the north side of the James River at a place called Deep Bottom. There was mm -hmm. a brigade of federal soldiers that held that little beachhead there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Grant's idea was to send the entire 2nd Corps, Winfield Scott Hancock's Corps, arguably the best corps in his army, Certainly. along with Phil Sheridan and his cavalry. Mm -hmm. And this operation was designed for Sheridan 
getting back to railroads, mm -hmm. to go and break the railroads leading into Richmond from the north and the west. Mm -hmm. And maybe, mm -hmm. maybe Hancock could be successful in breaching the Confederate defenses north of the James and enter Richmond itself. Yeah. Burnside's mine was an afterthought. In fact, Grant just said, told Meade, hey, well, just have him explode the mine anyway mm -hmm. without anything happening. Well, mm -hmm. this operation on the north side of the James that's known in Civil War history as First Deep Bottom mm -hmm. failed. Mm -hmm. But it did succeed in drawing all but three of the Confederate infantry divisions at Petersburg mm -hmm. to the north side of the James. Mm -hmm. And so it is on July 28th <clears throat> That Grant says, in essence, well, plan A was a fizzle, mm -hmm. but you know, now we have plan B, and there are not that many Confederates at Petersburg anymore. Maybe this darn thing will work. Meade, let's make it happen. Mm -hmm. So that's where – now, Grant, you know, who I admire in many ways, and I think that Grant was uh, clearly, if not the best general on the Union side, one of the best generals. So I'm not an anti-Grant fellow at all. But like almost all Civil War figures, yeah. Grant embellishes oh. in his memoirs, <laughs> his memoirs. <laughs> and he will say that this was his ideal all along yeah. <laughs> in his memoirs. And most historians have picked up on this yeah. and they call Deep Bottom a diversion. Yeah, you got to be careful with Grant's memoirs now. Well, <laughs> that's really – that really ain't so. Uh, but it worked out that way. Yeah. It was yeah. a happy coincidence that this happened. And so really at the 11th hour, uh, Meade is charged with the responsibility of making this darn thing happen, not only exploding the mine, but then executing Burnside's plan for an attack. Yeah. Well, you know, Grant had seen this, this uh, similar thing happen at Vicksburg um, the previous year. And um, a detonated uh, mine underneath the Third Louisiana Redan, and uh, tried to pour pour John Logan's division through there, and it got bogged down. And then a counterattack, and it was a bloody mess, and um, failed. So, I mean, he'd seen this before, and you gotta you gotta think in your head that uh, this is rolling around in his brain, going, "Well, I don't know." Uh, this is – I've seen this happen before and it didn't work then. I don't know why it's going to work now. But, you know, when he runs out of options and, you know, you can only – you look at deep bottom and see the failure there, he's got to fall back somewhere. Well, and, uh, and, and you know, and, and it, it did work to the extent – This the, the, the point is that the deep bottom operation did draw – Oh, yeah, the majority that, of the Confederate sure. infantry over to the north side of the James. So mm -hmm. the only distinction I want to make is that that was not Grant's original intention, yeah. but it worked out that way. So now the Confederates have two infantry divisions on the eastern front mm -hmm. and then one infantry division, Mahone's infantry division, extending to the west of a, of a road leading into Petersburg called the Jerusalem Plank Road. Right. And that's all. Yeah, And yeah. that's all they've got. So now – hey, maybe this darn thing will yeah. work. And again, I'm not so sure that Grant was skeptical about the explosion coming off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think he and Meade were skeptical that once the explosion occurred, they didn't have the chance to exploit it, that yeah. the Confederate defenses would be too strong. Yeah. But now the Confederate defenses were weak. They were weaker, yeah. So uh, I, I, in my opinion, and it's just an opinion, but I – I think that this operation had every chance of being successful, mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. for the way it was planned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we get into exploding this, and we'll do this very shortly. Uh, I want to do this in short order. Um, let's let's talk just a very very briefly about the Confederates uh, who are over top this mine. This is uh, Stephen Elliott's brigade. Yes, yeah, Stephen Elliott, uh, who is a South Carolinian of some strong lineage, his yeah. brigade had come up. They had spent most of the war in South Carolina around Charleston. Uh, they had been brought up in the spring of 1864 along with a number of other Confederate units as Lee was trying to bulk up um, defenses in Virginia. Uh, mm -hmm. They were part of Beauregard's army. Mm -hmm. uh, General P.G.T. Beauregard was in command of the Department of 
North Carolina and Southern Virginia. Mm -hmm. By June 18th, he was functioning essentially as a corps commander under Lee. Right. But there was uh, – Lee was um, respectful of Beauregard's position as a an independent army commander. And Elliott had uh, five South Carolina regiments, about mm -hmm. 1,500 men. Uh, they had protected uh, an artillery battery commanded by a fellow named Richard Pegram, who was mm -hmm. the cousin of the famous Willie Pegram, Willie, Confederate yeah. artillerist. Four four Napoleons, I believe, were in the were in the fort, uh, and the fort itself was somewhat mislocated, in that um, this was part of Beauregard's third defense line. Mm -hmm. Uh, the first line was compromised on June 15th. The second line was abandoned on the night of June 17th and 18th. And this third line was constructed, but it was done in the dark. Mm -hmm. And this salient, this Elliot's or Pegram salient, was actually located a little bit out in front of where it should have been. Mm -hmm. But the Confederates did a great job of compensating for that misplaced location by having artillery batteries on either side of Elliott's salient mm -hmm. that could sweep the approaches mm -hmm. to that apparently vulnerable fort. Mm -hmm. And this is why the Union strategists said, boy, no frontal attack is going to work here yeah. because yeah. it would just be blasted by this flanking fire yeah. of Confederate artillery. Now, the Confederates there, Kent, were uh, – they had heard rumors about Union mining. In mm -hmm. fact, the rumors were sufficiently credible mm -hmm. to compel General Beauregard to send an engineer officer to not only Pegram salient but two other salients. They didn't know mm -hmm. where this where? mining was going on. So yeah. they dug these countermines looking for this reputed tunnel, mm -hmm. never found it. Mm -hmm. And like in all things in human endeavors, when you suspect something is happening but you don't find any evidence of it, you begin to get skeptical. Yeah. And so I would say that um, there were very few Confederate defenders in that fort who were aware they were about mm -hmm. to be blown into heaven mm -hmm. on that next morning of July yeah. 30th. Now, before he lights these fuses now, has there been or, or just explain what kind of a planning there was to, to launch the attack into – this area that's going to be blown up. Um, explain a little of that for them. Well, of course, now we're this is starting to get into why this darn thing didn't work. <laughs> uh, Burnside had four divisions. Three of them were com com comprised of white troops. Mm -hmm. One was comprised of a combat innocent division of African-American troops, the fourth mm -hmm. division. Mm -hmm. Now, Burnside's three white divisions had been heavily involved in the attacks on June 17th and 18th. They had taken very severe casualties mm -hmm. and they were um, not in particularly great combat condition. And mm -hmm. you could say that incidentally about almost all of the oh, Army yeah. of the Potomac oh, at that yeah. time. Oh, yeah. But the black division had not been engaged at mm -hmm. all because mm -hmm. of the bias against black troops. And their commander and their officers were very eager to demonstrate their worth as soldiers. Mm -hmm. And they were gung-ho to make the attack. Consequently, Burnside designated them mm -hmm. as, the, as the leaders. Mm -hmm. uh, now, reputedly, your listeners will read general accounts of Petersburg and they will read that the black troops had received extensive training for this unique operation. I'm not so sure the evidence sustains that. They may have had some training, but I think you can exaggerate that a little bit. Mm -hmm. But um, the plan was for the black division to lead the assault, to go on either side. There were two brigades in this division. One brigade would go to the left of the hole created by the explosion. One brigade would go to the right, and then they would both converge on high ground where Blandford Church is located today. The soldiers called it Cemetery Hill. There was a big cemetery associated with the church. And that was the highest ground in the area. And theoretically, if Union infantry and artillery held that high ground, they would interdict almost the entire Confederate defense line. Mm -hmm. Now, what would have happened from there is speculative, and I can't tell you what would have happened, but it would have been a much tougher day for the Confederate Army if that would have occurred. Mm -hmm. But at the 11th hour, 
on July 28th when Grant tells Meade, hey, let's do this mine thing now. Mm -hmm. Deep Bottom has been a failure. Let's do this mm -hmm. mine thing. Burnside and Meade have a conference and Meade tells Burnside, you can't use the black troops. Mm -hmm. Well, Burnside is upset by this. Why? Mm -hmm. And Meade explains, well, first of all, they've never been in combat. Right. How can we trust these brand new soldiers? I mean, they, as far as we know, they might just turn around and run away. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if the attack is not successful and the black troops suffered terrible casualties, what is the press going to say? They're right. going to say that all oh, this emancipation and we're fighting to end slavery, but we send these black troops in to get slaughtered. We don't care yeah. about them. Yeah. Politically, that's unacceptable. You have to use one of your white divisions. Interesting, isn't it? So politics do enter into this, but it's also a, a military decision. Burnside hopes that Grant will overrule Meade, but Grant sustains Meade. And so literally uh, around noon on July the 29th, Meade informs Burnside, nope, you got to pick somebody else. Now, mm -hmm. up until this time, Burnside has done just about everything right with mm -hmm. this operation. But now he makes a huge mistake. Mm -hmm. He has two competent white division commanders. Mm -hmm. Commanders of white troops, I should say. They're all the division commanders are white. And he has one who's awful, mm -hmm. who's a drunk mm -hmm. and a coward and who has demonstrated his inability to lead troops. Instead of designating one of those two competent white division commanders to lead the attack, Burnside, being the genial fellow, none of his commanders volunteering for this dangerous mission. He says, well, guys, I'm not going to make somebody do it. Let's just leave it up to chance. He pulls lots. And of course, <laughs> the man who gets the short straw is the worst, is the worst man. His, <laughs> man. his name is James Ledley. And so Ledley is given responsibility for his division for leading the attack. Okay. And, and uh, he's going to lead, Ledley's going to lead the attack. And then are the uh, the 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 two African American uh, commands uh, are going to be where where are they? They're they're relegated to being the last of the four divisions to make an attack. Okay, and they're very upset about this. Yeah, and so is their commander Edward yeah. Ferrero. Yeah, to make matters worse, worse, Kent, that that not only have they changed the leadership, uh, but Ledley gives contrary orders mm -hmm. to his brigade commanders. Rather than skirting the crater and heading for Cemetery Hill, which is Burnside's plan, yeah. he tells his brigade commanders to skirt the crater and hold the ground. Mm -hmm. Subsequent divisions then will expand the breach and the black troops will be forth to make the assault, will be the ones to take Cemetery Hill. So you not only have the worst division commander in the Army of the Potomac leading the attack with, what, 11, 12 hours of lead time, 15 hours of lead time yeah. to plan this, but he has given contrary orders. Yeah. So this is a formula for disaster. disaster. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, so uh, uh, we're at uh, 3.15 uh, in the morning of July 30. Tell us what happened. Well, the the explosion is supposed to take place at 3.30. Uh, of course, the, the Ninth Corps is poised to, to make this assault. The Fifth Corps is on their left, poised to follow up. Two divisions of the Army of the James are to the right, poised to follow up. Henry Hunt has 110 cannon and 54 mortars ready to open up on the Confederates to keep down uh, uh, fire. And so everybody's at the edge of their seat. Meade has moved forward to Burnside's old command post. Burnside has moved forward to a position where he can see where the mine is going to explode. Colonel Pleasance and a fellow named Jacob Doughty from the 48th Pennsylvania enter the shaft, go down 400 feet, light those 98-foot-long fuses. There's five of them for redundancy. Mm -hmm. They scramble back out of the tunnel and wait for the explosion. And, and they what? wait. And they <laughs> wait. Four o'clock, nothing happens. Yeah. Grant rides forward to Meade and says, what the heck's going on? Yeah. Meade says, I don't know. I'll tell Burn. I asked Burnside. Burnside says, I don't know. Yeah. Grant tells Meade, hey, if the thing doesn't explode, tell Burnside to attack anyway, which I think is incredibly reckless. Yeah. Well, Colonel Pleasance figures out that probably the fuses have burned out at a splice. So he and Doughty go back into the mine. 
yes, they burned out, but they forgot to bring any matches. <laughs> so they went back out and they came back in and they lit those fuses. And of course, they're much shorter now than they were originally. So they, I imagine, get out of that tunnel pretty yeah. quickly. And at 4.44 a.m., this gigantic explosion occurs. Yeah, wow. And after, after it occurs, I mean, after it explodes, uh, then... The, the 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 infantry move right into the breach? Pretty much so. Um, Burnside gets, I think, unfair criticism for being accused of not preparing for his troops to get out of the trenches to make the attack. I don't yeah. think the evidence sustains that. 352 Confederates are casualties immediately as a result of the explosion. And then Ledley's division goes forward. Mm-hmm. Not with Ledley, however. Yeah. Ledley has sought... Um, Sucker from a uh, bottle of medicinal liquor. Uh, he says he's suffering from the ill effects of bad water uh, and has been slightly wounded and he needs some medicinal liquor. So he is hiding in a bombproof shelter during the attack. Uh, the brigade commanders move forward. They see this incredible, unprecedented mayhem created by this explosion a 30 foot deep hole, 126 feet long. Um, 60-some feet wide, Mm -hmm. bodies all over the place, half-buried men, um, no leadership. And so they spend time extricating some of these poor Confederates out of their graves um, and then obeying their orders to hold the position. And they miss the window of opportunity that could have changed the course of the Petersburg campaign. So they they get finally – they get into the crater. And um, and uh, what's the Confederate response? Well, the Confederates are disorganized for maybe 15 or 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. But then they do a pretty good job of recovering their wits mm-hmm. and begin closing the gaps. It's about a 500-yard evacuated area of the Confederate line. The explosion mm-hmm. and its relative uh, impact has yeah. created a five-football field long gap in the Confederate line. But the Federals aren't moving forward, and the Confederates begin lobbing artillery shells at the crater area, lobbing mortars at the crater. And as soon as um, Lee and Beauregard are informed of this event, Lee sends orders to General Mahone, who Mm -hmm. has been his go-to guy, has been his shock troops, Mm -hmm. located farthest away from the crater to take two of his brigades and to try to regain the lost ground. And mm-hmm. so Mahone will surreptitiously have two or three guys at a time leave the front line so they look like they're just going back to get water. He assembles about 2,000 men, Georgians and Virginians, and they take a circuitous route that's invisible to the Federals, and then they use ravines to get into a position about two to 300 yards from the crater in order to launch their counterattack. Describe for our listeners what what this looked like, what happened in this. Well, the the Confederates, this gets into the rather ugly aspect of of the crater uh, uh, in in which there's a racial component. Now, the black Mm -hmm. division, the fourth division, is the last to go forward. Mm-hmm. They do. They do it with enthusiasm and they actually go a little farther forward than any of the other white troops do. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, I mean, that, we're talking 20 yards beyond the old yeah. Confederate line or yeah. so. Yeah. And the, these Confederate counterattackers are now made aware for the first time mm-hmm. that they're going to be fighting black troops. Mm-hmm. And the African-American soldiers would shout as they made their attack, no quarter. Remember Fort Pillow. Now, no quarter, as your listeners know, means we're not going to take prisoners. Yeah. We're going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And remember Fort Pillow was a reference to a celebrated, much publicized event in West Tennessee in April in which Nathan Bedford Forrest was accused of authorizing the slaughter of surrendered black soldiers mm-hmm. at this fort along the Mississippi River north of Memphis. It was conventional wisdom amongst Confederate soldiers. Mm-hmm. that there would be no quarter shown them by black troops. So mm-hmm. you have this setup yeah. in which both sides believe that it is war to the death. War to the death. And that's the mindset that the Confederates go forward with. Well, long story short, um, these two Confederate brigades make their assault. The Virginians go first. 
they recapture a large section of the line just north of the crater. Mm -hmm. The Georgians come in, but their attack is rather disorganized, and they they are pretty much repulsed. Mm -hmm. So by noon, the Confederates are ensconced uh, near their old blown-up lines to the north of the crater. Several thousand of these leaderless federal soldiers are in and around the crater itself without yeah. any real tactical organization. Yeah. Meade and Grant have given up on the operation, and they basically told Burnside, get out of there. Yeah. You're done. We're done. Yeah. And so it, the temperature is 100 degrees. Yeah. The Confederates are lobbing mortar shells into the federal lines. So there's random mayhem. The Federals are stacking corpses of their own men and dead Confederates as breastworks against these Confederate attackers. And Mahone has realized that by this time that his two brigades made gains, but they did not regain all the lost ground. Mm -hmm. He needed more troops. And so he had summoned a third brigade of Alabamans mm -hmm. commanded by a very young former student at the University of Alabama named John C.C. C. Sanders, just 24 mm -hmm. years old. Sanders brings 632 of his Alabama soldiers on the same securitist route that mm -hmm. um, Mahone's first two brigades followed. They went into that ravine, and at 1 o'clock, they get their orders to make an attack. Yeah. Gosh almighty. Well, tell us, keep, keep, keep going. Well, a little for how I think, you know, we talk about leadership. Uh, the Civil War is a great uh, exemplar for how to lead people. And one of the great things that Sanders and his officers did from a leadership standpoint was to employ psychology. Mm -hmm. And these fellows are sitting there looking at this chaos and mayhem in front of them. Mm -hmm. General Lee and General Beauregard, I think incredibly, mm -hmm. had positioned themselves at a little white house called the Gee House, just on the other side of the Jerusalem Plank Road, not 500 yards from the crater, which I yeah. think is remarkably reckless on their part to be yeah. that close to the action. Yeah. Yeah. But they're there watching what's going on. And Sanders and his officers tell these young Alabama boys in those five Alabama regiments that if they fail in their attack, that General Lee has volunteered to lead them to a second effort. <laughs> now, there's no evidence that Lee ever said that. No, no. But the, but knowing how devoted yeah, the were. Army was to General Lee and how the idea of putting Lee in a position where he'd have to risk his life yeah. because they failed yeah. was a tremendous motivator. Yeah. And yeah. so at 1 o'clock, Sanders' men go forward, and this is where some of the most brutal – um, and just horrifying hand-to-hand -hand combat of the entire Civil War takes place. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there is a, uh, a wholesale slaughter of the Union troops, particularly the black troops. The Confederates mm -hmm. are uh, – there's all sorts of evidence that I present in my book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just no question that there was a calculated uh, plan by the Confederates to murder surrendered Confederate – I mean, surrendered black Union soldiers, yeah. and they did so with yeah. impunity, yeah. Uh, and it didn't take all that long, and Sanders had uh, was able to regain the position with only about a 1,000 Union yeah. survivors left to surrender. Incredible. It's, what, it's awful. Yeah. What, what, would, what would have been the total number of casualties on both sides? Well, you, you know, it's you, so hard. As you know from your oh, own yeah. work, Kent, you know— Casualty figures that are reported are um, are, are just estimates, they're, really. They're, they're you know, they're presented as as facts. Yeah. But I I have found that there's just no way that you can really know. Now the Federals reported three thousand seven hundred and ninety eight casualties. I think there were many more than that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the Confederates lost sixteen hundred men more or less, yeah. which was almost the same percentage of troops engaged as the Federals because yeah. they only – the Confederates only had three brigades involved in this in this battle. Yeah. So the casualties were, were very heavy, particularly on the Union side. Uh, about 17 to 18 percent of the soldiers engaged here were casualties. 
But amongst the black troops, an interesting statistic was for, for most of the Civil War, the ratio of killed to wounded in a battle would be about one killed for every 4.8 men wounded. Mm -hmm. At the crater for the black troops, it was one man killed for every 1.8 men wounded, wow. which shows you oh. that um, these wounded and surrendering yeah. Black soldiers were just murdered. And there's just so much evidence for this oh, yeah. um, that it's just indisputable that this happened. And what to me is, is sad and <clears throat> remarkable and uh, begs questions is why did this happen and there were no repercussions? In fact, there's lots of evidence – and I was shocked, frankly, Kent, to find this in doing research for this for this book. Lots of evidence to indicate that – Everyone from southern civilians to newspaper editors to members of the army entirely approved of mm -hmm. what happened. Mm -hmm. Now, Mahone at, at one point apparently – and there's enough evidence here that I think this really did happen – that he called it off. He said, stop. Stop it. Stop it. Yeah. yeah. And there was an editorial in one of the leading Richmond newspapers several days later that took Mahone to task and basically said, General Mahone, the next time black soldiers come to attack us – have some brandy and water, strengthen your stomach, and do the work that God intended you to do and slaughter every black soldier that comes against us. So that was the ugly, vicious mindset. Yeah. But I want to – I say that um, not to uh, be uh, condemnatory of the Confederate soldiers, although any human being would be condemnatory of them, but to try to understand why. Yeah. And the mindset was this would be the way that either side would, would yeah. treat the yeah. other. If they didn't, the other was going to do it to them. And there's right? evidence to indicate that um, yeah. when the black troops had the chance, they murdered Confederate – captured Confederates too. Yeah. So it was uh, – you know, we like we like in our in our history to sugarcoat everything and to think that these guys really didn't dislike each other. And when the war ended, they all got at Appomattox and saying "kumbaya," but it was an ugly business. It was an and ugly... there was an awful lot of of out and out hatred yeah. uh, between blacks and whites and Confederate and Union soldiers, and, and between uh, and between the the, con the those Confederates and their Union counterparts, their white counterparts. I mean. Uh, this had, this war had gone on a long time. Well, one this, of, yes, one of the shocking things, and I don't know how much this happened. Apparently, it happened a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the evidence is not overwhelming on this, but it's enough to convince me that it did happen. That as the Confederates came into the crater and were killing all these black soldiers, the white soldiers who were about to be captured shot some of their own black comrades. Why? Because they wanted to demonstrate to the Confederates that they didn't like the blacks any more than they than the Confederates did, and so don't God. kill me, God. because I'm with you, buddy. Yeah, I don't like these African American soldiers either. Yeah, and so there were evidence of that, and there was also some offhand comments made after the battle by witnesses, Union witnesses, who were clearly not upset by the fact that the black troops were yeah. slaughtered like this. Yeah. So this racism, this racial attitude, was pervasive on. Both on, sides. On both sides, yeah. Gosh, they uh, so the Confederates regained the uh, the, the crater. Um, the counterattacks drove them back, and they would and, hold that um, position the rest of the campaign. Yeah, and just think how long that would go. Uh, this is July thirty, and when does Lee evacuate Petersburg? Well, we have another what eight months to go. Eight more. Eight more months. months. Yeah, of this to go, and and again, casualty figures at Petersburg are and only estimates, but um, you know there were probably north of one hundred and twenty-five thousand total casualties at Petersburg. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Which you know even dwarfs Gettysburg. But now Gettysburg's three days. Three days. Uh, yeah. And Petersburg's two hundred ninety-two days. But yeah. you know, I hope that your listeners who are interested in Civil War military history will. Try to suspend their disbelief that Petersburg was a boring trench-like siege. Yeah. I don't like to use the word siege. I think that just implies a, a very uh, uninteresting military operation. And I'm sort of invested in the premise that this is an interesting story <laughs> since I'm spending well, I'm tell you, you've, 20 years of my life writing about it. <laughs> well, you've made it so. You've made, I, I hope our listeners understand how, how much you've made it so in – 
your talk with me today. Um, a little note of a personal experience of mine in, in, in this. Some years ago, I was called by an old fella in Petersburg who was the son of a veteran of the 12th Virginia Infantry in Mahone's uh, brigade. Now, he didn't run across very many sons of Confederate veterans. Uh, I ran across a son of a Union veteran once in a parade uh, at Alonzo Cushing's birthplace in Delafield, Wisconsin. Boy, you must be old, kid. <laughs> I've known but, these sons of veterans. Well, I mean, it was the guy was very he, he he was born when his dad was dad had him when he was really an older man. I mean, in his uh, late sixties, early seventies, and at any rate, he called me up and he said, "I had done some work with him before," and he called me and he asked me. Kent, we we have uncovered some remains of a um, of a Confederate uh, who came from here, and who was killed in the counterattack in the crater. And uh, would you would would it be possible for you to come out and um, give a eulogy by the grave in Blandford Cemetery, right up the Jerusalem Plank Road and uh, Cemetery Hill? And I said, you know, I would love to. Uh, uh, and I said, I'll, I happen to be in the, I'll be in the area around the same time, and I'll make it a point. So my wife and I uh, uh, went over to Blandford Cemetery, and there was they had identified this man uh, through something they found in the in the hastily dug grave that they located, and the family was there, and uh, I'll never forget giving a talk in Blandford Cemetery over the grave of someone who fell, having been invited by the son of one of his comrades um, about the uh, Battle of the Crater and uh, told him how the detonation went up in the air and it was just down there. And um, it was the most, I don't know, kind of spine-tingling thing I think I've ever done. It reminds and, us that really the Civil War wasn't that long no, ago. No, and it's why I bring it up. I mean, it's because it isn't that long ago. Um, it's, I mean, I'm 69, going on 70. Um, and I think, well, when I was a kid, we celebrated the centennial, 100 years. Hell, that isn't a long time. I mean, I, I've lived 70 years, and that doesn't seem like very long. And yet, here we are uh, in our lifetime. You know, uh, uh, Will, we were born, you know, 80-some-odd um, years after the war. Well, and, I uh, knew a fellow whose father was in the Civil War, too, in Petersburg. Yeah. His father was in Pickett's Charge. And just like the gentleman that you were talking yeah. about, his mother— at a young age, married this 80-year-old Confederate veteran who still yeah. had enough in him, I guess, to, <laughs> to father a child yeah. um, because the Confederate veteran had a pension yeah. and he had means. And yeah. uh, this poor woman did not have many prospects. I mean, if you, yeah. if you were a Southern woman at that time, uh, if you weren't married— um, life was going to be very difficult for yeah. you. And so this did happen. But I, this is why I think this is all so important to us. And what you do in all of your endeavors, Kent, is keeping the memory and the relevance of the Civil War alive to current and future generations. And I think that's really what all of us who are engaged in public history yeah. want to do wow. because this is an incredibly important <clears throat> period in our history. I don't know how you can understand contemporary America without understanding our precedents. Yeah. And the Civil War was so central to who we are today. It is positively central. And 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 while we're here talking right before we have to close here, uh, Will, and you too, you have been a public historian for <laughs> how many years? Oh, about 45. About I hate 45. To say yeah, years. yeah, yeah. And look at all you've done. I mean, you've basically created Pamplin Park in uh, at Petersburg, and you have spoken to so many audiences. You have done so much publicly about the war that the same goes back to you. I mean, you have done a tremendous service 
Well, I appreciate that, this. and I think we, you know, I know that you share my feeling that we have a an almost an obligation. We do. I don't want to get too uh, emotional about it, but uh, I, I think if if we spent a great deal of our lives studying this, and we have an obligation to share it, yeah. And I think that's what public history does. Is um, not to not to uh, belittle our academic colleagues, who no. oftentimes talk to each other, yeah. but not so much to a wider audience. Right. I think what you and I try to do is bring this fascinating and important uh, aspect of our very being as Americans to as wide an audience as we can. If we're historically illiterate as a culture, I don't think our culture has much of a future. No, I agree with you. It's the whole reason we have this uh, Witnessing History Education Foundation is to bring it to as wide an audience as possible. Well, it's a terrific and, uh, program, and I and I thank you for allowing me to be a part of it. Well, you've been a friend of mine since what was it? We calculated last night, 1984. Uh, I, I mean, I, that's I, a long time. Well, not 1884. <laughs> no. Let's make that clear. It was 1984. Well, thank you so much for uh, for being here. Thank you for your friendship, and thank you for your wonderful description. Of, I, I appreciate of the opportunity, Kent. Thank you. Become an American hero who participates in our mission by joining us at witnessinghistory.org. Download our documentaries and free teacher education materials that conform to grade-level education standards at pbslearning.org. Follow Witnessing History on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.